as scorching the state, the awkward scenes captured by ABC News cameras. After the instance, Mr. Morrison told reporters that he understands the strong feelings people have, adding that his job is to support the states in their response. Military helicopters and ships are already being used to evacuate thousands of people. The bushfires have killed 18 people since September and destroyed more than 1,200 homes in the states of New South Wales and Victoria. Julian Castro is ending his bid to be the Democratic candidate in the 2020 U.S. election. Castro served as housing secretary under former President Barack Obama and was the only Latino in the race. Our U.S. correspondent William Denslow reports. Taking to Twitter, Julian Castro thanked his supporters and vowed to keep fighting for an America where everyone counts. Castro is a vocal critic of U.S. President Donald Trump and positioned himself as a liberal and staunch defender of immigrant rights. But Castro failed to gain traction in the polls, and his campaign suspension still leaves 14 Democrats vying for the chance to be the party's candidate to take on President Trump in November's election. The Iowa caucuses next month kick off state-by-state -state votes to determine who the Democratic challenger will be. The winner will be announced at the party's convention in July. William Denzelo, New York. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe is set to feature its first ever transgender character. The studio has plans to roll out a variety of minority characters in a bid to better reflect audiences around the world. Gillian Wolfe reports from New York. Marvel Studios boss Kevin Feige confirmed the plans to students at the New York Film Academy. Citing the success of the universal blockbuster Black Panther, Feige said they want every member of the global audience to see themselves reflected on screen. This year, Marvel will introduce its first gay character, as well as its first deaf and its first Asian-American superhero. Fans are expecting the transgender character to be the recently introduced Sarah, who is from a group of all-male angels who transitions to a female identity and exists primarily in Thor's world. The next Thor film, Love and Thunder, is slated to hit the big screen next year. I'm Jillian Wolfe in New York. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Welcome, welcome to the program. So first off, I'm hoping the sound is better. Had a few people reach out and say that the sound is really low for me, but not for guests or not for show audio. So hopefully this is better. The microphone is up. Um, you know, sometimes we make adjustments when, especially when I fill in for other programs from here, then we do sound checks for there and then changes are made. And then, you know, it kind of translates over to here, which is the main deal, which is the live stream. So I want to say hey to all my friends. First off, 2020 vision. 
Happy New Year, you guys. Happy New Year. We made it to 2020. <laughs> so now we're in the roaring 20s. People keep saying, it's the roaring 20s again. It's the roaring 20s again. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know if the comparisons to the previous roaring 20s we had back in the 1920s is apt or appropriate, but I'll just say, you know, I was so glad to say Merry Christmas to you. And now Christmas is over and um, it's Happy New Year to you. So hey to Tammy, Smoke, Tracy. Um, and I know Big Ron was in there before. Um, he's still, they're still up in the chat there. If you want to know what I'm talking about, you have to head over to StacyOnTheRight.com and you can see the chat window there. You can join the chat and you can also watch the show while we're live streaming live. We don't currently have uh, the show stored over there, but you can listen to the audio of the program anytime at StacyOnTheRight.com or listen.StacyOnTheRight.com. So what's up today, you might be wondering. Well, we have some victories, uh, some really nice victories to talk about. And I want to start off um, by first, I want to tell you guys a little story. So, and sometimes people really get excited about having, you know, like, I love it when a friend tells me a story. In fact, a friend of ours had a kind of after Christmas before New Year's party. And we went over there and she told us this story about a speaking engagement that she'd had where God used the people that she spoke to to kind of resolve an embarrassing moment she'd had back when she was a teenager. And she was marveling at how the resolution to that moment, it came full circle for her. It was one of the best stories. I, I, this woman is a storyteller extraordinaire. And, and the story was so great. I mean, it was just, if you know when it's, when someone's telling you a story and you're just like on, you're up on your tiptoes or you're at the edge of your feet almost. Cause I was standing up. We, it was a huge party, a lot of people there at her home. And she was telling us the story and I'm like, wow. So I was so glad she invited us and then it kind of chased us down a little bit. Cause my sister was leaving, going back to Virginia. And I wasn't sure if we were going to make it because weather was looking bad. And I was afraid my sister was not going to make it onto her flight and we weren't going to crash the party with my sister, nor did my sister want to go. Um, but she ended up getting off okay, and then we ended up going over to this party and having a fantastic time and hearing this amazing story. So I'm not saying my story is going to be as good as hers was, but here goes. So some years ago, and by some I mean more than 10 years ago, I'd run for school board because I was an appointee. And after, so I was appointed onto school board because one of the school board members left and she was uh, going to work for the district as a communications director. And so her spot had 11 months left on it. And the board had to appoint someone to serve out the remainder of her term. So a board member reached out to me by phone on a Sunday afternoon after church. And as it happens, I'd been talking to my husband saying, you know, I volunteered so much in the district and now I've served on strategic planning committee. And I wonder if I should think about going on school board. And I said, if I did think about doing that, what would you think? And he said, I would love it for you to do that. If you want to do it, I'm right here for you. Do it. That's what he told me. <laughs> He's like, do it, girl. Get on that school board if you want to. I was like, really? I was so surprised that he was in favor anyway. So then the phone rings that like two days after that conversation, the phone rings on a Sunday afternoon and it's a board member and she's telling me that they have this open board seat and would I like to go out for it? And I was like, you're asking me? She said, yeah. I said, what makes you think I could get on? She said, well, I'm a board member and I'd vote for you. And I think a lot of the board members would, we just worked with you on the strategic planning committee. And I was like, um, so what do I have to do? So she told me what I had. Basically, I just needed to make sure I knew what board members did because the requirements for getting on a school board are surprisingly lax. Like you don't have to really know or do anything. If you want to serve publicly on a school board, all you should do is get elected. So um, I went out for the board seat and shockingly enough, 
my interview was amazing. It was a public interview, a group public panel interview. I did fantastic and they picked me. So I served the 11 months, right, of the term. I run, I, I stand up this school board campaign. I raised $2,300. Um, it was so much fun. It was just the like the best thing ever. I run and I knocked all these doors, like thousand doors I knocked. I would do it in the afternoons right before I go pick up the kids for school. I just go knock 50 doors. I just go do a subdivision or whatever. And um, I lose by 453 votes. So I'm devastated. I don't know what to do. And my neighbor, who'd thrown a little cocktail party for me to meet some other neighbors, she calls me up after I lost. She said, I heard what happened, and I don't think God's done with you yet. And I'm thinking, God's done with me yet? I didn't win. <laughs> so she says, um, I want you to go to lunch with me and my friend. So we go to lunch, and her friend is Dr. Gina Loudon. Now, you guys might remember Gina Loudon. She's on the Media Advisory Council for President Trump. She's on Fox News a lot. Yeah, that Gina Loudon. She used to live here in St. Louis. And that's when she and I met and we became friendly. And so the first thing she says to me is, you've got to come to Tea Party Under the Arch. I'm not like, it's not my whole thing, but I am able to add speakers and I think you should be one of our speakers. And I was like, what do you want me to speak about school board? She said, you can speak about whatever you want. So I decided that I would speak about the genocide of abortion because at the time I had just recently seen the documentary that Connie Eller and some other local St. Louisans are in called Mafia 21. So I go and I make the speech. She said, you're going to have like three or four minutes, so don't, don't get windy. So I, I show up to the speech that day. This is September 11th, 2010. And I show up with my husband and the kids, and it's on the arch, and there's like a big hill there. And people are sitting on the hill on blankets. Some of them have brought sport chairs, and there are like thousands of people there. There are porta-potties. The Tea Party organization, Tea Party of St. Louis, had actually – gotten permits and gotten space there. They had porta potties there. They had security there. The police were there. FM News Talk 97.1 was broadcasting there. It was, I, I, I wish I could like describe to you how I, I, we walk up there, me and my husband and the kids, and my eyeballs got huge. I'm like, I'm speaking to all of these people? So they show us up to the stage area and she's like, when we call your name, we're going to introduce you you're going to come up these side stairs and you're going to stand on the stage. And so we're talking about like Senator Roy Blunt. He wasn't a senator back then, but he was there. He spoke. Um, all these people like Dana Lash, all of these people that are like big deals. And I'm, I'm in the list like I'm, gonna, I'm speaking to. So I get up there and I give my speech about the genocide of abortion and how we have to stop it. And I got huge applause for it. And then I kind of walk off and I'm, I'm like in a daze, like what just happened? And that's where I met Chris Arps, who is a local radio host here now. Um, he actually took the Saturday spot I used to have after Annie Fry took it. He's, he's now got that spot called The Weekend Report. And he at the time was running an organization called MoveOnUp.org. And he asked me to, to be the volunteer director uh, of that organization and we did MAFA 21 showings across the country. And that is how I came to the attention of Jamie Allman, who then invited me to have a weekly spot on his show, which led to me having, uh, you know, a regular spot on FM News Talk 97.1 on Saturday and then on Sunday and then on Urban and then on AFR. And then here I am. That's why I say the show has been going on for um, since 2012. So, you know, it's been going on for almost eight years. And that's the same show, same host, me. That's what's been happening. <laughs> so, so I tell you all of that to say, 
But while I'm not one of the oldest people on the speaking circuit or in the pro-life movement, I haven't been here the longest. I'm not, you know, I don't have the longevity prize. I've definitely been talking about the pro-life issue. I even spoke about it before that. I would talk to friends and neighbors about it, um, mostly friends, and a lot of them um, were totally what they called pro-choice, but they were Christians. So that's how we would meet through things. And I'd find out that they, they supported abortion. And I would tell them that that was wrong. And um, so the long and the short of it is that now it's coming full circle again, because I just realized that it had been 10 years since that first speech, my very first public speech to thousands of people, my very first public speech period beyond like the small groups that I would speak to at school, uh, volunteering for the kids. And now here I am, uh, it's going to be just here in a few weeks, um, February 1st, we are going to have the March for Life in Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, it is our regular, it happens every year. Um, I think I spoke there last year. Yeah, I spoke there last year. I've spoken there before. And I'm going to be the pre one of the pre-rally speakers. So I'm not speaking at the big rally, but the pre-rally where we get everybody warmed up, I'll be speaking there. And that's why I was thinking about when did I first start speaking about the pro-life issue? When, when did I first start thinking about that? Um, and I just, I'm, I'm looking over at my shelf over there because I see people in the chat room talking about how they have the, uh, I have a couple of copies too. Um, if you need a copy of the Mafia 21 movie, I think I have another copy. If I do, I'm definitely willing to send it to you or put you in touch with uh, my friend Connie. I think she can get you a copy as well. Um, so anyway, that is that is the like full circle moment that I'm having, that it's been 10 years. And in that 10 years, we've seen the abortion rate in Missouri drop. And this is these, these are not my credits. I don't get credit for this stuff. I'm just telling you about what God has done in Missouri. So please don't think I'm tooting my own horn. I just think it's interesting that it's 10, 10 years um, of me talking about this publicly that has, you know, now I'm going to speak about it again and it's been 10 years. It's kind of just a moment for me. Um, but, but God gets the glory in all of this because I wouldn't do any of this stuff without him prompting and give me the desire to do it and making me able to do it, give me the courage to do it, making an opportunity for me to do it. Okay. Um, so in Missouri, we our one lone abortion clinic that we have that's Planned Parenthood branded is actually no longer doing abortions, and they're referring people to Illinois just over the river. And that is God's goodness. And so speaking on that same issue, and we're going to cover a bunch of stuff. Like the funny thing that I have to chat with you about is how, um, how the Democrats could try to beat um, President Trump in 2020. And they're going to try to beat him, obviously, but the things that they need to do to beat him, they can't do them. And I'm going to tell you exactly what those are. Um, and then let me tell you. So I want to move over. Let me move over my other little computer here. I want you to hear this audio about the reduction of the number of abortion clinics around the world. And then I want to give you some stats because we have much work to be done. But God is on the move. Check this out. There are now six states with only one remaining abortion facility. Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, and West Virginia each have just one abortion clinic operating within their borders. Missouri's sole remaining abortion clinic may soon close. It's in the midst of a legal challenge after the state's Department of Health and Senior Services inspections at the clinic discovered deficiencies, including multiple failed surgical abortions. 
And Arkansas may soon become the seventh state with one remaining abortion facility, pending whether its recent pro-life laws go into effect. So those are great. Um, like it's a rundown of what's happening across the country. And that's from EWTN, the audio clip. that was a TV show that they have. And it was from about four months ago. So she's doing this rundown and talking. Then she interviewed um, six states have one single abortion clinic left. It's EWTN. And um, here she interviewed Steve Aiden, chief legal officer and general counsel at Americans United for Life. And um, it's pretty good news. It's actually real fantastic news that one third of all the abortion clinics in the United States have been shut down. That is per life news. But let me go a little bit deeper than that. Abortion was the leading cause of death worldwide in 2019, killing 42 million people. So a heartbreaking reminder about the prevalence of abortion comes from statistics compiled by worldometers, and it indicates that there were over 42.3 million abortions worldwide in 2019, and that fully eclipses the numbers for cancer, HIV, AIDS, traffic accidents, suicide, Abortions far numbered for far outnumbered every single one of those other causes. By contrast, 8.2 million people died worldwide of cancer in 2019, 5 million from smoking, 13 million from disease, 1.7 million died from HIV AIDS. De deaths by malaria and alcohol are also recorded. But since unborn babies are not recognized as human beings, the numbers are not used in comparative stats. Because I believe around the world, if everyone on this planet was told that we kill that many people through abortion, first of all, a lot of people would stop complaining about the other deaths. And, and I'm not saying complaining like it's not valuable and important information for us to talk about the people who die from heart disease, you know, preventable deaths. And there's, there's so everyone's going to die of something. And it is very naive to act as if we could you know, completely eradicate and eliminate every cause of death. But we could take better care of ourselves. We could honor the Lord with our bodies by, you know, hey, I'm pointing at myself, not overeating, exercising more, getting enough sleep, um, you know, getting enough time outside, getting enough sunlight and vitamin D, making sure your iron levels are up and you're not anemic. I mean, we could go on and on and on. There's a lot of us who are not honoring the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those preventable deaths are the ones that people are like really upset about because they think that, you know, that 55 year old guy didn't have to die of heart disease. He's 55. He should have lived to be 85. It's the same thing with people who die of, you know, cancer. If it's lung cancer and it's due to smoking, people will always say, oh, he's, you know, gone too soon. If only he hadn't been a smoker. We're all subject to these things. You know what I mean? So it's not it's not as if any of these death causes are, escapes us. Abortion is so prevalent that you're, you're not sitting here listening to me talking about this and you don't know anybody who's never had an abortion. They may never have told you, but people in your family and your extended family and your work circle and your church circle, especially when you're in church, when you're in church, you look around one out of every three of those women has had an abortion. One out of every three women in America. OK, so this is not something where we can escape it. But abortion is especially brutal because someone is being killed at the behest of another person. So when it's cancer, it's not like someone came over and tapped you and said, you got it, you're going to die of cancer, and you're welcome because it's their, their idea for you to die. It's the same thing with in, any of these diseases. But with abortion, one person decides that another person 
should not live and that person is killed. That's the thing. That, that, and that's the part of the reason why they don't want us discussing it and they don't bring it up and it's just, you know, outside of these death numbers. So I'll give you a little bit more here. Um, an estimated 61 million unborn babies have been killed in abortions in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And uh, he mentions the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C., where hundreds of thousands of people come and the news media ignores the huge crowd, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just... I just want for all of us to be aware of the staggering implications of this kind of bloodletting that's going on and that we will be held accountable. And I say we because Americans, we are exporters of abortion. We also, um, we call it family planning. And we also take uh, you know, it upon ourselves to force taxpayers to support abortion, which coincidentally, one of the wonderful victories of 2019 is that President Trump uh, decided to make it mandatory for health insurers to tell you when you're paying for abortion. So if your plan pays for abortions, they have to tell you now. Trump 2020. <laughs> okay, so uh, so now I want to talk about this story. This is three. Oh, and we have one more. Okay, one more housekeeping thing before we get to the story. About And this is over at CNBC, and you'll find all these stories over at listen.stacyonright.com. Um, this one, so we're going to do this story about Democrats need to accept these three truths to beat Trump in 2020. Uh, we're going to talk about this story that's over at stacyonright.com by Steve Gruber, and it's New Year's resolutions, and it is epic. That's why it's up over there. <laughs> you have to see this story. It's so good. Um, and I just ask you to please share the stories over at stacyonright.com. So last housekeeping note. This is going to be the last month that I'm taking Patreon. Um, first of all, we had a precipitous drop in the number of people who are supporting me on Patreon, probably because last month was my worst month for broadcasting because we had, you know, Christmas and time off. I was traveling a ton. I went to D.C. Uh, three times in six weeks from November to the end of the month in December. And then I had two weeks of fill-ins on WMAL and Sirius XM. And um, so, you know, I totally understand that no one's required to do anything. So th this isn't me complaining. I'm just talking about logistically. So I looked in there last night to see what was going on with the Patreon as a new person has subscribed and I wanted to say thank you. And then the first thing I noticed is that um, they added something called a platform fee, which sucked out an additional 55 bucks. So basically, they're taking out such an enormous amount for their fees that it's no longer it's, it's not beneficial for me to be on there. You're basically paying to support Patreon, not me. It's ridiculous how much they're sucking out. So I'm going to just go back to the regular PayPal method. And the other thing that I'm saying is I made some money working. Uh, it was pretty fantastic working uh, for WMAL and also for Sirius. And I'm putting that money towards my fees um, so that I, I don't, I, I just, I don't even feel like I need to be doing the Patreon anymore. Um, I feel like the Lord is going to do wonderful things in 2020 and I need to have faith. I need to have faith and step out in it that he's going to, he's going to take care of these needs. He's going to take care of these things. And so the PayPal will still be there for people who want to periodically, you know, say thank you or, you know, give a love something or other, which is fantastic. And I do appreciate it. And I love y'all. Um, but I just, I don't feel like it's good stewardship for you guys to be giving of your, of your, what you make 
and trying to support the show and for Patreon to take that much out of it. I think it's wrong. And I understand they have to support their business model, but there it's just like out of nowhere, all of a sudden there's this huge platform fee that they started. And I think that is my cue to just go ahead and let that go. And th that way you still have your support dollars that you can do whatever you want with. And we don't have to worry about them going to Patreon. Let's just put it that way. So, um, but I, you know, I just got to say, you guys have been like the Calvary riding in supporting the show when we got the bad news on, you know, June of last year, you guys just rode right in. You were like, nope, we're not, not today. We're, we're, we're going to keep this going. And it has been so encouraging and I've just been so grateful. So, you know, just, you guys have been super and, um, I'm not going to let you waste not one more penny over there at Patreon. No way. You you deserve better than that. Um, and so, and God is going to move. I, I feel like this is a faith walk and he's right here with us. He's here with us as long as we keep doing what we need to do. So on that note, <laughs> here's the story over here by this guy named Jake Novak. Now I'm assuming he's not a Republican. The, the tone of this op-ed, it's an editorial, so it's opinion, is such that it makes me think that he's not a Republican, okay? Here's what he says, the three things, three truths that Democrats need to accept if they want to beat President Trump in 2020. Now, full disclaimer, I am on the advisory board for Blacks for Trump, and I don't want them to beat President Trump next year, but I don't have to worry about this, do I? Do I have to worry about this? Because the Democrats are not going to do any of these things. Check it out. The first one is, he says, hey, Democrats, y'all need to stop saying President Trump didn't win the White House fair and square. You need to stop saying he stole it or that the the uh, the Russians like manipulated it for him. He won it fair and square. I'll give you the, the quote from him. Let's start with what is still the toughest pill to swallow for Democrats. Trump won the White House fair and square. He goes through the Mueller investigation and the report. He talks about everything. He said, just imagine if Democrats spent as much time and effort on winning back the battleground states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin as they have been in pursuing the Russia collusion obsession and the impeachment process. He says, if the latest polls in those states tell us anything, those other efforts have only made things worse for anti-Trump forces. It's time to cut bait on the stolen election illusion. His words, not mine. He says, second thing they need to swallow is that the economy is doing well, even for the little guy. It says, whether they deserve it or not, Democrats have been consistently viewed by most Americans' voters as the party that's more concerned with the poor and lower middle income earners in this country. In many ways, it's been a golden ticket to victory for Democrats in almost every major election. <laughs> He's right. But why? Why do Americans think Democrats love them so much? They don't love you, okay? So it says, uh, he goes on to talk about the truth. The truth is that new data shows the labor market has become so tight that rank-and-file workers are now getting bigger percentage raises than the bosses and top management. Americans further down the income scale are now experiencing record wage gains. Okay? So the economy is good for everyone, especially lower income workers. Stop lying about it. Stop acting like it's not true. Deal with it. Deal with it. That's what that's what he's trying to say to y'all. Y'all need to be um, need to be understanding that while you're doing all this lying about the economy and down talking the economy and still obsessed with impeaching and removing the president, this is the sound that's coming towards you for 2020.
whole thing going on. This is the sound of the Trump train bearing down on you. That is what is happening to you right now in the polls. Y'all, please keep it up. That's all I got to say. Please keep it up. Because I, I would love for the president to not just have a fantastic electoral college vil, uh, victory, but a landslide on the you know popular vote. I just want him to just take all the different parts home. Take all the trophies home. Don't leave anything on the table. Run the table, President Trump. Do it for the people. And that's also my prayer. Father, please help President Trump to run the table. Electoral college, popular vote, everything. Exit polls, let it be what it's going to be. And, and you know, President Trump, do it for God's glory and, and amen. Okay? That's what I'm looking for. Um, so the third thing he says, and this is my favorite one in the list, although the list is really good. <laughs> Yes, Tracy. Yes. Yes, everybody's laughing in the chat room saying, so he wants Democrats to be honest, and now they're laughing hard. <laughs> but here it is. He says, stop denigrating the voters. Even mediocre students of American history should know that politics of this country have always been nasty. And they have, okay? Um, but the nastiness has only really been effective when it's directed at the opposing candidate. And that is the lesson. It's like a part B to this lesson he's trying to teach, which is, I'll give you the part B first. So when President Trump was really nasty to Hillary Clinton, people might not have liked it, but they understood it because they were in an election contest. When President Trump was in the primary and he was slashing and burning his opponents with, he wasn't just slashing and burning them. He was gleefully burning their houses down and running off their cattle before him. He was literally in kill mode. Why? Because he wanted there to be no doubt in the mind of any voter that he was the Republican nominee and not by the skin of his teeth, but by the sweat of his brow. Now, you don't have to respect it. You don't have to like it. You could even, you know, break out your scripture. Honey, I understand. I understand, honey. OK, so I understand feelings. I understand, you know, some people just are very, very upright and they don't like that kind of nastiness. I get it. But he did that. That's what he did. That's the history of it. You can like it or dislike it. It already happened. There's nothing to do. It's in the past. It's just, it's just what happened. Okay? I loved it, actually. Um, some of it was a bit, like, it was a bit too brutal for me. Like, I was like, ew, this is painful. Because I really liked Marco Rubio. Uh, you know, I didn't care anything about the, the comments about Jeb Bush. Um, the, the, it got a little bit rougher than I would have preferred with uh, Ted Cruz, but everybody's copacetic now. It's in the past, okay? The reason why a lot of people weren't concerned at all and probably looked at me and were like, are you concerned, Stacey? Really? Because it was a race. It was an election contest, and they were in it to win it. All of them were. They just didn't understand the rules of the game, which was there were no rules. That, that was the – so. Basically, President Trump, then candidate Trump, came into the, the, the game and he was like, what's what are the the uh, what are what are what are what are the rules here? And they they broke out a big encyclopedia Britannica and turned to page 260 and said, well, right now we're playing in this section of the book where these are the rules. There are 700 rules for you to learn. Come back when you've learned them. And he came in and took his arm and swept everything off the, the table and took the book and set it on fire and threw it into the fireplace and said, now. We're playing a free-for-all. Sit down. And they, they, they either sat down or they ran off, but that was the new game. That's how that worked. And it's just a lesson for us. Sometimes 
when you go in and there's a book of rules that's as tall as you are in thickness, you just have to say, I'm not, there are no rules now. You had too many rules. You spent too many years stacking this against any regular person. I'm regular. Then the rule of the game is I'm going to just call you whatever I think you really are. And um, like they're saying in the chat room, the nickname stuck, Crooked Hillary, Low Energy Jeb, all that stuff. So he, You have to actually give him credit and be grateful to him that he did such a good job getting rid of people who they were perennially in politics and they would still be running today if it weren't for the fact that they were vanquished by President Trump to the degree that they can never run again. You should be grateful for that. Anyway, so he says... That more and more these days, the rule is being broken. And one of the major rules just about every politician in America has ever followed is that you never actually go after the opposing candidates or party's voters. So you go after the policies, you go after the opposing candidate, but you never go after the voters. You notice the Republicans never say, now, it's true, Mitt Romney said 48% of Americans don't pay any tax, and a lot of people got mad, but that was because they weren't paying any tax and they got called out on it, not because he was lying on them. He didn't go after them. He just said, those are people who don't pay any tax, so they're never going to vote for us. <laughs> what was wrong with him telling the truth about that? I just think it was so funny that he told the truth that everybody got so mad. Anyway, he says, more and more these days, the rules being broken is mostly being broken by Democrats. The most egregious example from 2016 was Hillary Clinton calling Trump voters a basket of deplorables a term that Trump supporters have now taken on as a badge of honor, which is true. You know, to have Hillary Clinton call you deplorable means the word deplorable no longer means what we thought it meant because she is a criminal. She's running around in those $12,000 house suits and she's not been prosecuted for all the stuff she's done, not to mention all the stuff her husband has done that he hasn't been prosecuted for. And so if a criminal looks down on you with disdain, you got to wear that as a badge of honor. In fact, isn't it so that you say you can be judged by the number, the, the number and quality of your enemies? If your enemies are criminals, that means you're standing for righteousness. And if that's what she says about us, of course we're going to wear it with pride. Of course we're going to say a woman who should be in prison, who is responsible for the deaths of four Americans, and now we have the proof. Oh, I'm all off this right now. Let's talk about what they were trying to say was President Trump's Benghazi over the weekend. Some Iranian-backed militia terrorists showed up at the American embassy, and they were bur they burned down one building, and they had they were holding our embassy people hostage. And so, instead of President Trump making them send how many cables did uh, Ambassador Stevens send to Hillary Clinton? Seventeen cables. President Trump got one cable and sent in the Marines. I watched the video just before the show of the Apache helicopter coming down and it sends out these, the Apache helicopter shoots out these bursts of fire and they're basically just huge light shows. It looks like it's a bomb raining down, but what it is is it's a light show to drive protesters or people out so you don't kill anybody. The Marines went in with rubber bullets and tear gas. Less than 24 hours after they showed up, the Iranian-backed, protesters not they're not protesters they're militiamen and they're terrorists they went for the hills because president trump it's not not only is it not his benghazi it's a textbook case study case it's a textbook um lesson in how to protect an american embassy in a foreign country now do i need to tell y'all how we don't need to be there anymore 
do I need to tell you that we don't need to have people over there in that foreign country, in that Middle Eastern pit? Yes, I guess I do. We shouldn't be there. But if we are there and we have Americans in harm's way, by all means, if they jump froggy, you send in the 82nd Airborne. That's what he did. He sent in the 82nd Airborne, and now we have 750 additional troops on the way. So you better understand, terrorists, that if you jump Froggy one more time, it won't be light shows and rubber bullets. Y'all are going to be meeting your 72 virgins down in, you know, you know where you're going. You're going to hell. Uh, that's, that's what's going to be next for you. And I know that's not nice, but is war nice? See, people keep acting like we're playing tea party with these folks over there that we're clinking spode porcelain with these people, that we're pouring out some Earl Grey or some chai tea for these people. This is war. You go set an American embassy building on fire, you better believe we're going to send in some Apache helicopters and 750 Marines. We sent in 100, 750 on the way. That's what happens. You, what do you expect when you say, hmm, let's go burn down part of the American embassy and hold those people hostage? We say... Why don't, you, why don't you let us introduce you to the 82nd Airborne? Why don't we send in a few SEAL teams and introduce you to American military might? Sorry, but that's what we have to do. And so, therefore, I'm not really sorry. That's like just a euphemism. It doesn't mean sorry when I say it like that. It's sarcasm. Sorry about that. So, that's what happened. Now I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back over here. So he says... Because that's just one, in one way that President Trump is completely different from Hillary Clinton. She would have allowed those embassy people to have been held under siege for days and days and weeks and weeks, and she never would have gotten them out. That is her thing. And, and you see what President Trump's thing is. Winning, still not tired. So he says, and another example of not learning from 2016's mistakes, we're still seeing 2020 Democrats and their supporters following this line, which includes a Democrat with per, their perhaps the best nice guy persona. Now raise your hand. Only one hand, guys. If you're driving or you're doing stuff with the kids or what have, don't, don't raise your hand. But in, mentally, you can raise your hand. Did you guys hear Mayor Buttigieg say that Trump voters were at best looking the other way on racism? Now, I'm a Trump voter. And I've told you guys about racist incidents that have occurred. And I've also talked about how racism isn't the thing that stops you from doing what you want to do in America. What is he talking about? That we look the other way on racism. Americans are tired of hearing about racism. That's why they're looking the other way. They're not just looking the other way. Americans are running in the other direction. We're tired. We're tired of hearing about racism. We want you to leave us alone so we can just treat each other nice and be together the way we've been doing. Okay, uh, judge. So he says... This cable news host asked him if casting a vote for Trump could be considered a racist act, and he said, at best, Trump voters are looking the other way on racism. Has he lost his mind? That's because he's going up in the polls a couple of times. He, he thinks he can just say um, anything about us. We're not going to vote for him. He doesn't even know the Bible. He's using the Bible to justify being an openly homosexual man, and we're supposed to be what? We ain't voting for him. But... Prominent liberals and never-Trumpers are increasing their attacks. Filmmaker Michael Moore, who is persona non grata with regular people who can think, said this week that two out of, white three, two out of three white men, two out of three white men voted for Trump in 2016, which means two out of three white men in America are not good people, and you should be afraid of them. Now, this is actually dangerous because 
if you tell low info voters and people whose minds are weak and mushy that they should be afraid of white men, then they're liable to react violently to normal things that, you know, normal everyday people are doing. Now, you should be situationally aware, and it's not about someone being white or black. It's about the neighborhood that you're in, their behavior, um, whether or not you're, the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up. You know, being in condition yellow means you would be aware of any person, not just because they're white or they're black. You just need to be aware of your surroundings. But this is the kind of drama that Michael Moore wants to stir up amongst people. And I just thank God, praise be to the Lord, our Father God in heaven, that he has less of an influence than he used to have when he was making those BS documentaries. Okay? Bull Street, not the other thing. Bull Street documentaries. So, he says, also, Dan Rather said last month that Trump voters are a part of a cult. Dan Rather has... He's working past his expiration date. That's his problem. He should no longer be up in front of people talking because he makes no sense anymore. And never Trumper, so-called Republican, not a Republican, Jennifer Rubin, has been pushing the line that Trump voters are poorly educated. 70% of Americans don't have a college degree. I'm one of those people. I have oh so many college hours, but I don't have an actual degree from any place. Lots and lots and lots of Americans are in that situation. Either they've never been to college or they went and they dropped out not college educated, and our country rocks. We're killing it. So we don't need a bunch of people who have these liberal arts educations from these institutions that want to teach you how to hate God and hate your parents and hate America. That's the reason our country is so strong, because most of us don't have these liberal arts educations. God forbid we should ever have a country where we're 70% college educated because all we would be is a glorified Venezuela. Oh, I hope that didn't hurt anybody's feelings on that. So... Democrats are never going to stop saying these things about us because their hatred and vitriol is way too strong. And that's fine with me. You know what I'm saying? I, I've told you guys many times before, it is actually a part of the disillusionment of becoming an adult that you prefer to know when people don't like you or don't want you around as opposed to them pretending. I actually am aware when people are not really happy to see me and I don't force myself on people. I am not a friendship racist or friendship rapist. I don't, I don't push myself off on people who don't want to be friends. If I call you a bunch of times and you don't call me back, I assume you just don't want to talk. If I come over and I feel like you're really not happy to see me, I'm not doing that again. That is not the way you behave towards other people. You use the visual cues and the emotional cues. You have emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence where they speak to you with verbal and nonverbal cues and information, and you take that and you incorporate it, it doesn't mean you're constantly cutting people off or you're being unforgiving or you're holding grudges, but it does mean that you are aware of the behavior of other people and you take it into consideration. That's all it is. And so Democrats are not into that. They just want to vent their feelings. They want to have their feelings out front and be able to tell you that they, they hate you or they don't want you around. They want to be able to vent on you. And I'm sorry about the fact that there are so many Democrats who are kind-hearted and sweet people. They just vote Democratic, and they don't understand what I'm talking about. They assume that I'm just stirring up hatred when I say these things. But the fact is, I've never had a Republican stick their finger in my face within like a couple of like milliseconds from my eyes to try to tell me how wrong I am on an issue. I've never felt the spittle from someone's mouth who's a Republican, up in my face. They're, they're spitting, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, let me close my mouth because your spittle is flying over in my direction. And if, I leave my, if I'm talking to you and my mouth is open and you spittle, 
it will go in my mouth. It'll be like we're kissing. Are you kidding me? Little angry Democrat. Back up. I've had to say, back up. And I'm tall. I mean, you would think they'd be a little intimidated, but they're not. When they get in their feelings, they're physically on you. So, look, the people who are that emotionally driven by an issue like politics or supporting their candidate or supporting abortion, that's when people usually lose their minds with me. It's on abortion. Um, They can get upset about economics. They really get mad when they realize I'm a Republican and they have to tell me I'm black. You're black, spittle flying. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I prefer to say permanently tan, but I am black and I'm happy about it. What do you what, what's your issue? You can't support those racist Republicans. Don't you know? I'm like, I know all about Republicans. All my friends are Republicans. Because you'd be surprised at how hard it is to maintain friendships and relationships with people who are Democrats when you're a Republican and you're black. It's kind of tough. And not because I'm not trying. So I thought that was an amazing piece. It'll be in the show notes today. Um, let me give you this last story. And this one is so good. It's written by Steve Gruber. And he's just fun. He has a show, the Steve Gruber Show. And you can find this over, it's already posted at stacyontheright.com, my website. And please, if you're over there, you know, uh, hit Hit the comment button, uh, um, comment on the stories. So it's called Dry January, A Nice Start by Steve Gruber. He talks about as far as New Year's resolutions going, he guessed over the last hundred years it's easily in the top ten for such personal promises, and he's talking about people promising to quit alcohol. Now, I will say, I used to be someone who drank Moscato and dessert wines, ice wine, sauternes, things like that. And I would drink, like, sometimes during the week I'd have a glass, but mostly it was on the weekend with dinner or after dinner I'd have a glass of, of you know, dessert wine as my dessert. And um, one of the kids had made a, a little kind of comment. I won't say it's snide, but it was like an observational comment, and it just hit me the wrong way. Um, oh, you're having, you're having your after-dinner wine or something like that. And I was like, after-dinner wine? What? Am I being judged? So then a few more days go by and one of the kids just was like, oh, yeah, because you always have a glass of wine right about now. I'm like, always. Do I always have a glass of wine? So I talked to my husband about it and he was like, well, I mean, you do you do drink, you know, you do drink wine. I'm like, yeah, but is it that regular? I thought I didn't even think I drank it that much. So then I saw a post on Facebook about giving something up if you want to kind of go up higher within the Lord. Maybe you're praying and you just want to it's like fasting, basically. And so I thought, you know, I want to see if I can do it because. I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm so attached to any kind of alcoholic beverage that I'm having it on a regular basis and I need it. So I gave it up and I thought I would give it up for a year. Well, a year in, I didn't see any difference in my enjoyment of life. I wasn't missing it. I didn't feel like I needed it. So it's been three years since I, now it doesn't mean I have, I've had like two sips of, of uh, champagne when we celebrated 10 years as a book club. Um, and I think I had a sip of red wine um, when we went out to eat a steak dinner with one of our kids to kind of celebrate. And I had the, the waiter brought us um, a whole bunch of different like extra things. And one of them was this glass of red wine that he said went really well with my steak. And so I sipped it and ate about it, the steak. And I was like, oh, it does taste really great together. Uh, I didn't finish it, but I did have a sip. But I'm speaking of just at home having wine. And we do have some here because if you come over and you're a guest in our home and you ask for a glass of white wine or red wine, we are going to open one up and pour it for you because um, you're you're here as a guest. And we would definitely want to, if that's what you'd like. But 
I gave it out three years ago and it's been fine. Like it's, it's just been so totally easy. It's not even an issue. And so I'm just saying, Steve Gruber is saying, that's not the one you should give up. He says, and he has a list here, and I'm not going to read them all to you because I want you to go to StaceyUnright.com, read the list and leave a comment because it would be fantastic to see what you think. He says, number one, these are lists of resolutions he recommends to you. Stop talking about things you know nothing about. <laughs> Don't write nasty things to people on social media you wouldn't say to their face in front of your grandmother. That's number two. Number three, do not text and drive. Number four, stop parroting things you hear and start thinking for yourself. And number five, give more to charity. The other ones are just as good as those first five. So I recommend you go over to StaceyOnTheRight.com and read it. And um, I just want to say thanks again. So it's the new year, and I'm feeling very thankful like it's Thanksgiving. But it's not Thanksgiving. It's 2020. And we have a 2020 vision. I know you have so many things you're working on that you're just continuing to work on. It's the same for me. And I just want to bless you. May God bless you. May his bounty and riches of blessings chase you down and overtake you. And in all things that you're doing, dedicate them to the Lord and watch him bring you the increase. And for anything that you feel you need, the Bible says we have not because we ask not. So ask. Ask the power source, our Father in heaven, and see won't he do it. I'm still waiting on some answer prayers for myself, but I'm excitedly anticipating what God has in store for me and for you. And so I think that's the show for today, y'all. I'm seriously, I went longer than 44 minutes or whatever the regular show used to be. And with no breaks, Mm, that must be some Holy Spirit intervention right there because I was feeling really tired and sluggish this morning. All right, you guys, fantastic to be with you. I'll be back. Actually, yes, I will be back tomorrow. Um, I will be doing live stream at 2 o'clock tomorrow. So I will see you then. God bless you.